Well, last week, we opened our series in Exodus. Exodus, God's people, God's plan. And we said that, you know, this is a very gripping story, that it just draws you in and invites you in early. And you realize there's all kinds of stuff going on there. There's intrigue, there's, there's danger, there's conspiracy, there's murder, there's, there's oppression. We said it contains all of the elements and all of the ingredients that Hollywood uses to put out their biggest blockbuster. You know, everything that, that the really big movies that Hollywood puts out, you find a lot of that stuff in the book of Exodus. And it's just this incredible story about God and how He reveals Himself to the people. And this people is eventually going to become, for once and for all, His people. And He's going to lead them through some incredible things. We said also that it doesn't really matter who it is, that just about everybody, whether they have gone to church or not, whether they went to Sunday school or not, just about everybody is aware of the Exodus story, at least in some way, shape, or form. You know, maybe they saw the Ten Commandments on TV years ago, and you know, we, last week we talked about our pictures of Moses, and some, some picture of Moses is, is Charlton Heston. Okay, others, maybe they didn't see that one, but they remember the prince of Egypt. Okay, and so, you know, that's the Moses that they kind of think about when they read this story. Or we talked about Christian Bale and Batman playing Moses uh, from Gods and Kings. And, And so maybe that's your picture of Moses. But just about everybody is familiar with this story at least a little bit. They know that something big happens, that God's people are oppressed and that God is going to lead them out there's going to be this parting of the Red Sea and he's going to take care of them and it's going to be it's going to be great well last week as we looked primarily at at chapter one there were a lot of things that were were going on and as we read from the beginning you know God has blessed this people Jacob and his family to escape famine they came down to Egypt where they found a place of, of refuge. And God blessed them. And it said they, they continued to, to multiply and they were fruitful. You know, and there was that, that creation language that we saw right there in chapter 1. And I said last week that as we go through this story, you're going to see creation language. You're going to see life. You're going to see things happening, multiplying, and fulfilling of people. But on the other side of that coin... You're also going to see uncreation or anti-creational language where there is death, where there is evil, where there are are plottings to thwart what God wants to do. And what we're going to see as we move through this story is that what this is really about is not Moses versus Pharaoh, but this is Pharaoh versus God. Okay, it's the most powerful man in the world Verse, Almighty God. And so we saw that they were blessed. The people began to grow and grow and grow. And Pharaoh looked around and he realized that the Israelites were just too numerous. And fear began to creep in. And he says, if they continue to grow, they might rise up against us. And we might lose everything. And so Pharaoh launches this this three-point plan in order to control the population and to control the people. Now, his first solution, his first solution was oppression and slavery. 
And so he oppressed them and he forces them to build these things. Remember, they built these store cities. Okay, and you know, as we, we talked about, you don't just do that overnight. You just don't build a city overnight, especially with the technology that was available to them. Okay, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, they didn't order bricks by the truckload. They had to make them by hand. Okay, so this is going to be a long time that they're feeling this oppression. And the result is, even though Pharaoh's trying to control population, he's trying to reduce it, they just kept multiplying. Okay, and so that takes a while. So we see that they spent a good bit of time under that oppression while Pharaoh's trying to work out this plan. Well, he sees that this doesn't work, and so then he kind of, he kind of finds some assassins, or what he wants and thinks are going to be assassins. And he goes to these, these Hebrew midwives and he says when the women are giving birth if you see it's a boy you kill the boy you can let the girls live but if it's a boy you you kill them the boys because that were the warriors they were those were the warriors and so he wanted to take out the warriors but they primarily were his workforce too so it really his plan is eventually going to going to burn itself out okay but the hebrew midwives they didn't do it they thwarted pharaoh's plan and so then he moved on to his his final solution, and that was issuing a nationwide edict of genocide, where Pharaoh said to the whole country, to the entire nation of Egypt, if you see a Hebrew boy, you kill it. You take that child, you rip it from its mother, and you kill it. Throw it in the Nile River. They were cast off. They were unwanted. They were, they were useless. And so today, as we look deeper into the story, we're going to see a, a, a cast of characters. Some of these characters are, are very, very brave. Some of them are very confident. And then there's going to be a couple of them that are not so much. We're going to see subversion. We're going to see today God enter the story, we're going to see a divine call that is followed by a spectacular failure that results in more oppression and more suffering. Yet in, in all of this, there is still a word from God to the Hebrews. And believe it or not, there is a word from God to us in this, in this story well. So let's start reading together. We're going to, we're going to look uh, at, at chapters 2 through 5 today and so we're going to be jumping around a lot but let's, let's look at the the big movements that take place here so let's begin reading in chapter 2 and uh, let's just start in in verse 1 now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was beautiful she hid him for three months now your version might say when she saw that he was fine, okay, but it also might mean when she saw that he looked good, okay, now that's not just a comment like, hey, that's a good-looking baby, I mean, because let's be honest, we all think our babies look good, right, okay, now then, there have been some people that who said their babies were ugly, uh, don't point any fingers in here, uh, I definitely was not one of those, but there have been people that have said that, but it's not just a comment like, oh, look at this baby, so beautiful, this is creation language that we see. 
Remember back at the beginning when God is creating, you have the, the two different creations accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And when God would finish creating something, what would he would say? He'd look at it and he'd say, it is, it is good, it is fine. This is that same language. So we see the creation language already in the story right here. Moses is born under a death sentence. Remember that. Keep that in mind. He's born under a death sentence. But he's fine. He is a good baby. This is creation language in the midst of uncreation that is happening. Verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket and she coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank in the Nile. Then his sister, and that's important, his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter, important. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile. And while the servant girls walked along the riverbank, seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy crying, and she felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go call a woman from the Hebrews to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him, I drew him out of the water. All right, now that's the, that's the, the birth story of Moses. Again, that's one of those things that everybody is familiar with. Okay, we know that Moses was put in a basket. We knew that he was sailed up the Nile just a little bit. And as Pharaoh's daughter is walking along, she sees the basket, she gets it out. There's a Hebrew boy in there. She's crying. And then Miriam, that's the, the sister, Miriam. Miriam is watching this whole thing take place, and she sees it, and she pops up. She says, hey, hey, I know. I can, you want me to go get somebody? And who does she go get? None other than Moses' mom, Jacobet. Okay? And so Moses' mother not only gets to nurse her son for a little bit longer, but Pharaoh's daughter also says, I'll even pay you for it. Okay, ladies, does that sound like a good deal? Okay, a little incentive there. Okay, so she's getting paid to stay with her child and raise, and raise her child. When, she's, when he's weaned, she took him to the house of Pharaoh. And in notice, it is not, uh, not Moses' mother that names him, but it's Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, Moses is not a Hebrew name. Moses is an Egyptian name. Okay, she named this because I drew him... I drew him out of water. Okay, so you have this plan that's in effect. Moses is supposed to be dead. Okay, he's born, and his first breath is a breath that is drawn under a sentence of death. Yet you have something that is going on, something subversive, something behind the scenes, something that is working underneath, kind of a, an underlying current that is flowing here to thwart pharaoh's plans it's kind of a holdover from chapter one and what it is you have these four you have these four or five 
women, you know, and I like to refer to them as this, the, the Woman's Counter Subversion Task Force. Okay, and you see this task force at work right here in, in, in chapter 2, and you saw them at work in chapter 1. Going back to chapter 1, uh, you have the midwives, Shifra and Pua. You know, they're the ones that were supposed to kill Moses. Okay, they were the ones that were supposed to take those baby boys and, and kill them as soon as they were giving birth. Okay, well then you have Moses' mother, Jochebed. Okay, and this is her child. She doesn't want to kill this child. So she does something. She makes a, a, a choice. She takes a drastic action, and she chooses to hide the baby. Okay? But then she knows this isn't going to work forever, and she, she, she continues her plan. She puts him in the basket, sends him up the river. Okay? Up the river, you have task force member three waiting there. And who is it? It is none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Okay? And she's waiting. She's down there, she sees the basket, she draws the baby up, she wants to care for this child. Notice, Pharaoh, her father, is vindictive. He is heartless. His goal is to annihilate the Hebrew boys, but what is her reaction? She's compassionate. She wants this child, she feels sorry for this child and so she draws him out now then let me just make a, a side note here because when you watch these movies and you see the prince of egypt and all that and it looks like pharaoh and you know, or the the young other uh, pharaoh's kids the who's going to be the next pharaoh and and moses kind of grow up and it's just them two and they have run of the whole palace it, it wasn't exactly that way there's a, a scholar by the name of uh, nahum sarna and he says that pharaoh had up to 59 59 daughters. Yeah, that's a lot of daughters, right? A lot of daughters. Okay, 50, yeah, 59 Celia's, Don. <laughs> Lord help you. Lord help you. Uh, yeah, 59 daughters. Okay, so Moses, what, what Nahum Sarna says is that Moses wouldn't have really had any special standing in the palace. Okay, because there's all these kids, all these kids that are kind of running around, but yet it's this daughter who finds Moses, draws him out, and is compassionate for him. And then you have, then you have uh, task force member number five, and it is Miriam. Okay, and she's the youngest one. She's, she's sly, you know. She says, hey, she's the one that comes up with the plan. Hey, you want me to get somebody to nurse the baby for you? I'll find somebody. Who does he find? Task force member number two takes Moses to his mom. Moses is able to nurse, uh, nurse from his own mother. And so what we see is that while the, the, the boys are, are, are facing destruction and annihilation, you have these women in this story that are working against, they are counterproductive, they are subverting Pharaoh's plan to annihilate all the Hebrew boys by saving this one generations of God's people are going to be saved now let's keep reading in, in, in verse 11 and when we get down to verse 14 I think it should pop up on the screen Moses grows up and it says years later after Moses had grown up he went out to his own people and he observed their forced labor he saw the Egypt, uh, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his own people looking around and seeing no one he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand the next day he went out 
And he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, what, why are you attacking your neighbor? And then verse 14, it should pop up right here. Who made you leader and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Moses goes out. He sees his people. He sees one of them being oppressed. And, see, and something stirs within him. Okay? That's one of his people. And so he steps in and he not only stops the Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. The next day, he's out walking around again. He's probably feeling good about himself because he has liberated, he has liberated one of his people, okay, at least in some sense. And he comes across two Hebrews, and they're arguing. And Moses, you know, he's feeling good. He's, he's shown a little initiative. He's shown some leadership. He steps in and tries to, uh, to mediate this, and the guy's like, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Who made you the leader? Who made you the judge? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses realizes that he's, he's caught. And so he flees, off into the, he flees off into the desert. Now, I've always found it intriguing that Moses, who eventually will become this, this great leader, this great deliverer, of God's people, he experiences a pretty big failure right here in chapter 2 as he rescues his kinsmen one day and then subsequently, subsequently his leadership is rejected by them the next day. Okay, And this is what causes him to go out into the desert because, hey, they know about me, I'm a murderer, I'm going to go off and I'm just going to live and, and be a shepherd out there in the desert. Now then, I think there's a point that we can grab from this story. Okay, there is a good reminder here for all of us, and especially anybody who is in a leadership position. Okay, whether you're a teacher or a, an employer or, or whatever it might be, if you hold any kind of leadership position or whatever it might be, there is an important, uh, there's an important point here for us. And this is really, it's for everybody. And it's just this, that failure, failure is part of the shaping process in our walk with God. Okay? That's very important. People, uh, you know, people are afraid of failure. Okay, I think we are becoming a society that's afraid of failure. Yes or no? Okay, we are becoming a society that's afraid of failure. You know what one of the best things my parents did for me was? They let me fail at some things. Okay, you know what failure taught me? It taught me that maybe I needed to rethink my strategy. It taught me that maybe I needed to try things a little differently. It taught me that maybe I should listen to the advice of others. It taught me that the world was not going to just be fixed in my favor. Okay? There is a lot that can be learned from failure. You know, and, and as, I, as I think about this, it's in those moments, it's in those moments of failure, those moments of failure have the most potential for growth. They have the most potential for understanding within ourselves and our abilities. Failure also helps us to keep our reliance supremely on God rather than just in our, our own abilities. You know, and I remember, you know, uh, uh, we'll, always, we'll always be indebted to and, and have a great love for George Rom. Okay? As a, as a person, as a man, as a shepherd, and I remember him. I remember him saying to me on more than one occasion, don't be 
afraid to try something. You know what he's saying? Don't be afraid to fail. Okay, if you fail, so what? We'll go back to the drawing board. We'll rethink it. Okay, we may have to scrap it, but don't let fear keep you from doing something. Okay, and as we look at the story of Moses and we see that right off the bat, you know, he's trying to be a leader and his leadership is rejected. It'd be real easy for him to say, you know what, forget this, I'm done. Okay, but he learns, he is eventually going to learn something from this failure. And that's, that's something that's important for us too. All right, so he, he, ends up, uh, he ends up going out to the, the, the desert. The, the oppression for the people continues to mount. Now then look at verses 23 uh, through, through 25. It'll be on the screen here. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Hebrews. He saw the Hebrews, and he took notice. God, Elohim, he is referenced five different times in this verse, okay? This is, that's important, because God is now fixing to enter or re-enter the picture. Okay, he's not going to be working behind the scenes any longer. He's now going to act directly and, and, and fearfully. And that's where we get into one of the most spectacular things that we read about in the story of Exodus. It's right here in chapter, one, uh, chapter 3. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding his flock of his father-in-law Jethro because he'd gone out to the desert and he married, he married Jethro's daughter, Zipporah, because he ran off some shepherds that were giving him a hard time. And so now he's just become this shepherd. You know, he went from living in the palace to living with sheep. Okay, he's, he's had a, a, a pretty big life transition. Okay, so he's just out there and he's tending his father-in-law's sheep. And it says that he led his flock to the far side of the wilderness and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now then, Horeb goes by another name. Do you know what it is? Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, where a lot of this is going to culminate as we move through the story. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame within a bush. Moses looked and he saw that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and, and look at this remarkable sight. Why is it the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that Moses, Moses had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Take off your sandals. For this place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know, I know their suffering. The God who has been silent up to this point now reveals himself to Moses. You know, and another good reminder is that, you know, we don't always know what God is up to, right? Yeah? You ever felt like God was silent in your life? But, you know, we don't always know what God was up to. And in some scenarios, you know, we might not ever know. 
guy named uh, Terrence Fretheim, as he's, uh, as he's talking about this encounter that Moses has with the burning bush, he says that God shows humility by becoming a messenger himself. A personal element in the divine address. Very early in the redemption of mankind, we see a foreshadowing of what Jesus will eventually do as he will leave heaven for the sake of all. So you have God speaking to Moses, interacting with his creation, with his creature Moses. And he begins speaking to him out of this bush. Moses' initial encounter with this bush is, is, is curiosity. Okay, it's curiosity that, brought, that draws him to it, but Pete N. says that he's getting a crash course in holy etiquette because his curiosity soon turns into a reverential respect as he turns away because he's not holy, he's not good enough to look at this. But it's then that he learns the true identity, the true nature of this messenger. It is, I am. The one you've heard about. I'm the God of your ancestors. I'm the God of your very own Father. And so then, God introduces himself. And you have all of these things that, that begin to happen. God introduces himself and he tells Moses what he is about to do. Look at verses, uh, look at verses 9 and 10. The Israelites' cry has come up to me. And I've also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Can you imagine what that moment was like for Moses? He's out there in the desert. He's been out there a long time. This is this not like he was in Egypt one day and like two weeks later he's just tending the sheep and runs across the burning bush. He's out there for a long time. Okay? And he's out there and he's just, you know, he's thinking about sheep. Thinking about sheep. Probably doesn't require a whole lot to think about sheep. Okay, stay with the pack. Don't die. You know? Don't fall down. Okay? You know, there's not a whole lot going on in his life at this moment. He lived in the palace. He grew up raised in the palace, but now he's just looking at sheep all day long. And he finds himself in front of this bush that is on fire, yet it's not being burned up. And anybody would want to go and check that out, and he does. And it's there that Moses hears this voice. And it's not just any voice, but it's the voice of God. He says, I'm the one you've heard about. And guess what? I have heard the cries of my people. And guess what? I'm going to free them. And guess what, Moses? You know, can you imagine at this point, Moses is like, yeah, God, go free them. They need it. I tried. They didn't want to listen to me. Go, God. You go get free those people. Guess what, Moses? You are going to be the one that's going to go do it. You know, say, what? <laughs> you, what wait, 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 wait a minute, God, wait. I already tried that. Okay? You remember? You remember back several years ago? I already tried that. They don't want me. That's why I'm out here. That's why I'm looking at sheep all day. But God says, Moses, you are the one. You are the one that are going to go and lead my people. And what follows is one of uh, my, my favorite parts of the story because we see the, the human frailty in Moses. And it's all of these excuses. And we've, we've talked about his excuses. And there's two or three excuses. And then there's just, five, there's just a couple of things where he's just going to refuse not to do it. 
But he's offering this, these reasons to God for why he's not the man for the job. And, you know, you, you read there in, in chapter 3, starting around verse 8, all the way into chapter 4, around verse 13, and you see these different reasons, okay? And every one of them, you know, it, it's, it's why Moses isn't fit to go and stand before Pharaoh and say, let the people go. But these excuses, they're bound up in, in inadequacy. Okay, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? That's one of the things that he's going to say to God. Okay, so he's inadequate about who he is. Okay, then he pleads ignorance. You know, if I go, what should I tell them? I don't know what to tell them. I don't know anything about this. Okay? Incredibility. What if they won't believe me? Because who am, who am I? Okay, and then it gets into other things because he's kind of grasping at straws, like his inarticulateness. And he says, who, what am I going to do? I've never been eloquent. I'm, I'm slow of speech. I'm slow of tongue. And then finally, it just comes down to insubordination where he says, please send somebody else. It's as if Moses is saying to God, God, here's why you shouldn't use me. I imagine that Moses' earlier failed leadership attempt is playing in his mind no doubt self-doubt is probably creeping up and it causes him to think that he's unqualified you see as he's offering these reasons there's more than just humility going on here moses wanted out he did not want to do this job okay now then some people might say that you know he's just being humble no moses did not want to do this okay he says please God, please send somebody else. And here's the thing. And if I'm going to make one point, it's, it's, it's simply this, and, and this is what it'll be. This is for Moses and the Hebrews, but I think it's also, I think it's also for us. God's call, God's call isn't dependent upon our abilities and our qualifications. Is dependent upon our trust in Him to provide us with whatever we need to complete the task. Does that make sense? Okay. God's call, if God calls you to something, if you feel like He's leading you somewhere, that He's wanting you to do something, okay, it's easy to question that call. Okay. We see it happen in Moses. Okay. He's questioning. Okay. Now, chances are pretty good you're not going to get a call like Moses. Okay, but God is probably going to call you to something. Okay, and you might come up with all the reasons why you don't do it. Now, then that call may come in the form of a person, somebody coming and asking you to do something, somebody pointing out uh, something in your life that, that maybe, you know, you might be pretty good at. Okay, but here's the thing. Our call, or God's call, has nothing to do with our abilities. Okay, our, our call... God's call is completely dependent upon our trust in Him. Okay, it's that old saying that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those that He calls. Does that make sense? So if God calls you to something and you feel that self-doubt creeping in, number one, that is from Satan. That's from the evil one. He's trying to get you to not answer that call. But if you're sure that God has placed this on your heart, then you can also be sure that God is going to provide whatever it is that you need to answer that call. All right, so let's move on. Chapter 5. 
Chapter 4 kind of ends with a really strange story where God either tries to kill Moses or he tries to kill one of his sons. It's kind of odd as to which one it is and, and why it happens and why it's right here in this story. It just doesn't make a, a whole lot of sense. But finally, he teams up with Mo, uh, Moses teams up with Aaron, and they head off to go tell the most powerful man in the world. <laughs> They're going to go tell the most powerful man in the world who is hell-bent on destruction and annihilation. They're going to go tell him what's up. They're going to go tell him, let the people let the people go. Look at, uh, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Later, Moses and Aaron, they went in and they said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know that Lord. What's more, I'll not let Israel go. And they answered, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labors. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are numerous and you would stop them from working? That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So Moses and Aaron, they set off to go and do God's bidding. And the results, Pharaoh says, okay, you can go. Peace be the journey. He says, no, what are you, crazy? I'm not going to let these people go. I don't know who your God is. I don't care about your God. Okay? These people are mine. They are going to work. And then to make matters worse, he doesn't just let them go. He goes to the taskmasters and he says, make their job more difficult. You were providing the straw for the bricks. Now let them go get their own straw. So they recognize the foolishness of this stuff. Okay, so they see that Pharaoh is in charge, not Moses or Aaron or this God that they, they speak of. And so matters just become worse what happens the amount of bricks has to be the same but the work becomes harder the israelite form and they're they're beaten and they take it out on the workers and eventually they've got enough and so they go to aaron and moses and they they confront aaron and moses and then you have this exchange at the end of the chapter verse 22 So Moses went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't delivered your people at all. Book closed. The chapter ends right there. 
Moses goes in and he says, God, what are you doing? You called me to this task. You sent me to stand before Pharaoh. I went. I told him what you wanted. You didn't deliver your people. You made things worse for them. He brings his complaint to God. And that's, you know, it reminds us of some of the Psalms. And I think that's why Psalm 88 was so appropriate this morning. Because it's a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of complaint. And that psalm is is different from any of the other lament psalms because all of the other ones, they sort of have this this confidence that they close out with. But Psalm 88, I don't know if you noticed, it doesn't. It sort of ends like, hey, darkness is my only companion. God is being told by Moses that you said you would help, but you, you didn't. Pete Enns reminds us of a great truth here, and it's that God's presence does not guarantee immediate results. And I think any of us that have been following Christ for a while, I think we understand that. That just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that life is just instantly going to get better and that things are just going to to get easier. And so again, the story is unresolved. The chapter just kind of comes to a close with this complaint. We're, we're left on a, on, a, on a cliffhanger. But it's a cliffhanger that's meant to invite us back, to draw us in, to see what God's response is going to be. And here's the thing. Put yourself in God's position for just a minute. How would you be... Destroy Moses. That's, that's one option. Two, act in such a powerful way that the exodus happens right then. But we know that God does not work that way because God sees the bigger picture. He sees and he understands the things that we don't see and, and understand. And so again, we're brought back to the same spot where we were last week of trusting in God even though we don't know where He may lead us, even though we don't know the end of the story, it is about trusting in God. Trusting that God will prevail. So how is this this a word from God to us? How can we gain from this story? Very quickly, I see six, six things. The first is that God's plan will always be attacked. Okay, there's always going to be opposition to God's plan. But unlike Moses and unlike the Hebrews, we have the advantage of being able to look back in history. And so we know how this story ends and we know that God prevails. God will prevail. Two, God always provided a deliverer or a savior for his people. In the Exodus story, it was Moses. For us, it's Jesus. God provides a deliverer. He provides a Savior in Jesus Christ who died to take away our sins so that we can live forever. Three, we serve a God who reveals Himself not, who reveals Himself to us, and not only that, He comes down and He meets us at our level. You know, as we've been studying these different religions from around the world, we've seen that there are many gods that people 
think about. And a lot of these gods are very impersonal. Our God is not that. Our God comes down to where we are. Our God left heaven and came to earth. And I don't know about you, and, and, and hear me on this. That's a God worth following. A God that leaves the perfection of heaven to come down to the brokenness of earth. The fourth thing, God works through our human frailty. So don't let those things, those where you feel inadequate, don't let those things become a debilitating excuse for why you can't answer God's call because God will provide. Number five, God can deal with our hard questions and complaints. Okay, Moses comes in and blasts God for his apparent lack of activity. And God can take it. God has a big shoulder. God can deal with our complaints. You know, I had somebody tell me one time, you can't ever question God. You know what? You read the Bible and the writers of the Bible say differently. Okay, Moses just came in with a hard, difficult complaint to God. God has big shoulders. If you've got stuff going on in your life and you don't understand it, instead of complaining to everybody else, complain to God. Take it to Him. Tell Him what's wrong. Tell Him where you see injustice. Tell Him where you see pain. Tell, you where, tell Him where you see hurt and brokenness and unfairness in the world. Take it to God because God has a big shoulder. And not only does He have a big shoulder, God is patient. God is loving and God is kind. Number five, or number six, when he calls, when he calls, it does not guarantee immediate success. And so there's a reminder there and there's a truth there and it's that as we live this, or if you want to use the metaphor of a, of a race, that faith Faith is a marathon. Faith is not a sprint. There's not going to be immediate, just complete success. And there might be some, but it's a long journey, and we have to pace ourselves. We have to trust God in the midst of it.